Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. Uh, let me welcome first. She is a writer, cultural critic. She's got a piece that's coming out in essence and a whole ass book on it called Surviving the White Gaze, a memoir. <laughs> let me welcome Rebecca Carroll. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Hello, hello. So um, you, you asked me, did you read the book? Because if you didn't read the book, then I have to, you know, uh, prepare for it differently. And I said I did not read the book. Um, but talk a little bit about why that was important for you. Because a lot of folks don't understand or realize if, you ha- if they haven't written a memoir, particularly one that deals with race and interracial transracial adoption, because there are so many complications and nuances therein, is that it's really, really the process of bleeding your story onto the page and the pages is, is a lot. I mean, it is a lot. I didn't, you know, I, I looked for a therapist for after I wrote the book, right? Mm-hmm. Not during, because I knew, I knew what I needed to go through to get it on the page, but I knew that the aftermath of having it on the page and the repercussions of having it on the page and the response to it was going to be a lot. Um, and so that's why it's like, it, it, it's, it's easier, maybe easier isn't the right word, but it, it's more um, gratifying to me to be in conversation with folks who have read it and can respond or pick threads that really mm-hmm. resonated with them. And that, that is spot on as somebody who has written, ghostwritten, co-authored about 30 plus memoirs. Um, one of the reasons why I don't want to ever do it again is because you're left with people's baggage. You know, it's like people are dumping on you. And if you're the conduit to making sure the story is shaped and developed, then you, you're carrying that for the time that you're in it with them. So I'm in it with them and I don't like being in it in somebody else's uh, situation with them. So I, I've tapped out. <laughs> I, I could, I can understand that. I mean, if you're talking about doing it with 30 different memoirs and b- people's baggage, I mean, that is quite a lot. I do also think though, and I don't, I mean, I, I have prior to this memoir um, published and written uh, several interview-based books, which is to me essentially about empathy and getting into the voices and the heads and the hearts of, of all these folks um, who I interviewed. This process was you know, I mean, it was, it was not merely stringing journal entries together. I mean, and I'm a life devout journal writer. It was really about using craft and Mm -hmm. skill um, and creating a real narrative um, that has a lot of ebbs and dips and, um, and pain. You, you asked me, cause I, I said to you, when I mentioned that I've ghostwritten or, or co-authored, you said, why would I need that? Cause you are a very accomplished writer, Rebecca Carroll. And I said, ask me that live and I'll tell you why. I mean, why would I not just need, but even want to have a ghostwriter? Okay. I, if I were to ever do a memoir, I would want to sit with somebody because perspective is everything. And a person will ask you questions about yourself that you may not even think to ask or think to want to delve into. They will pull things from you that you, you know, may be resistant to, to talking about. And I know we all like to think that we're like 100% transparent in a process, but it is so hard a what you just talked about. It is so grueling that it's almost like you're having a therapist walk 
work with you through the process and your skill as a writer will help shape it. But even that it's like, you know, memoirs are like thin slices or bits. It's, it's like important moments in your life. It's not your, I was born here and I went here and I did that. It is, it's the moments that are going to, you know, touch people's lives in a way to, to have them act or move differently. But that's what a great editor is for. I mean, that's, well, okay, that so, is their so, job. So you, you say that there aren't a whole lot of great editors anymore, but I appreciate what you're saying. I have found, in my experience, not a whole lot of great editors left in the business that can do that. So you're Fair absolutely enough. right. You're absolutely right, but there aren't a, there's not a lot. That's a, that's a lost art form. Great editors, man. You had a great I, editor. I mean, yes, I did. Yeah, I no, did. I um, tell. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, and I also have worked as an editor, so, so I know that that, what you're describing, um, is not, is, is not, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I don't think that that, what you're describing is ghostwriting. I think that what you're describing is good editing, but, but I think that you're, that you're right, that there are very few, um, that are left in, in publishing for sure. Um, and I want to just, uh, recognize, you know, my, my, Christine Pride is my editor at Simon & Schuster, who has her own new book coming out, uh, I think maybe even this week or very soon, but she was she fought very hard for it in, um, in a preempt uh, and worked with me very, very closely. And, preempt and so means before it goes to auction, before everybody That's gets right. to bid on it, she yep, jumped yep. in and said, I want this book, I'm going to give you a half a million dollars, Rebecca Carroll. All right, so... <laughs> <laughs> Surviving, surviving the white gaze. All right. So you have survived. You have survived the white gaze. Well, no, it's called surviving the white gaze because I'm still surviving. And I think that we all are. I think that, you know, we've talked about, or at at the top, you you mentioned how race is is a construct, be that as it may, we are continuing to survive that construct, right? We are continuing to try to figure out how to navigate what was set, you know, what, what scaffolding was was set that we can't manage to tear down not for a lack of trying as you know so how all right so i know your story and we're going to have um miss dinwoody will be on later on in this hour as well and i want i want to compare and contrast yeah april dinwoody uh you were you were a child adopted by a white family how how why walk us through a little (laughs) bit a little bit a little bit. How? Why? I ask the same thing, Karen. No, um, the, the how and the why is very sweet, very charming, um, and very you know, um, uh, best intention. They're all. It's all best intention. All of these adoption stories, I can say, um, are about best intentions. Um, I'm sort of in, done with best intentions and intent, particularly around adoption, but also around race and well-meaning white people. But so my story is, um, is unique in that my adoptive father was a high school art teacher who had a student, a white student, who had a black boyfriend and got pregnant. And my adoptive father and his wife, my adoptive mother had had two biological children, and they wanted to adopt. And because they had, you know, they didn't sort of tick off all of the the, the requirements at that time, because my, my father was a teacher, they didn't make much money, they didn't own anything, this and that, and so on and so forth. Um, they made a, they made a, you know, like a handshake agreement. So my birth mother was six, 17. And, um, 
she changed her mind after I was born and kept me for three weeks and then decided she couldn't do it and called my parents and um, they came and got me and she waited three years to sign for it to be legal. Um, and now in retrospect, I feel like she wanted to leave the door open. Um, when you read the book, you'll see that it was a, my reunion with her was extraordinarily toxic um, and really, really difficult. Um, and so, you know, my parents, my adoptive parents were white liberal, you know, naturalists. We lived in a beautiful farmhouse on top of a dirt hill road with um, gardens and acres of, of nature and land. And it was a, bu a bucolic, idyllic, raceless bubble created through the white gaze. Raceless. Um, to right. their minds. Right. right, 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 right. So were there other people with melanin in this bubble? No, you not a single one? soul. So you're and not the in the town. One. I became the first black person in the town. In the entire day. town. And this is the, the point that I'm making. We just, um, this weekend, um, Ted Koppel did a piece on CBS Sunday Morning about Mayberry. And that there <laughs> are whole pockets in this country that exist, homogenous, all so-called white, on purpose. Talk to me. On purpose. And I'm saying, think about that. And then think about your somebody's white gaze being so complete, so resolute that they saw no problem with bringing a black child into that bubble and the way in which that would traumatize or impact that child. Oh, no, they thought you, they were giving you a better life. You're going to have you know, the morals and values and opportunities that you wouldn't have with the 17 year old mother, you're, you're going to be, you know, feed it to all of the best, you know, look at this literature and this art and these, you know, sensibilities. We're, we're, we're saving you from the dark continent. <laughs> I mean, there is a lot of that for sure, but I also feel, you know, you mentioned the art and the literature. I mean, all of it was white, like the, to be, educated people in 1969, right? When the civil rights movement was at its peak to have the audacity to think, and they would, they would say that it was, that it was naivete, but I just, I don't, I, I don't know how that's absolutely how that's possible. Well, well let's, let's sit in there for a second. Cause I actually think it is Rebecca Carroll is here and uh, I want to have a conversation. 866-801-8255. If, if you know, it, you can, those of us who live in a world where we're forced to have to see everything, you, you say, well, how could you not see it? But if your whole entire existence is Warden Jew Cleaver, or, you know, as I mentioned, Mayberry, you've been raised with Gunsmoke and Bonanza. And, you know, these are these are worlds, uh, the little house on the prairie. I think there was one black person one season at some point coming through. But, you know, and then we know about slavery. But but, you know, you don't see anything wrong with it because that's your whole existence. And of course, you know, call of call of the wild and Bront, Charlotte Bronte, you know, all, you know, Shakespeare, everything is, you know, because you've been conditioned to believe everything starts with you. That's the white gaze. You don't think, why would you think any differently if that's the way you've been raised for generations? Well, Karen, what I would say to that is, and this brings into question a thing that I don't think we talk about enough, which is that, you know, people, white people particularly like to say, well, it was a different time. 
right? You know, when we talk about Gone with the Wind or we talk about any number of egregiously racist things, particularly in media, where it's like, well, it was a different time. Yeah, it was a different time when you got away with it, but it was still racism, right? And so why, you know, how do we have to be the, the folks who point out that, you know, if white people were raised a certain way, then they get then they get a pass for not thinking about things. I just I don't I don't agree with that at all. Like, yes, you were born and raised in the white gaze, and you therefore feel prioritize your own sense of what is morally right. But racism, it it didn't change. Like you know, moral the moral compass of of understanding what racism is has not changed it's just a matter of what people get away with and more often than not we're the ones black folks are the ones who are like okay can you hear me now right year on year on year on year for centuries <laughs> rebecca carroll is here and in her book surviving the white gaze a memoir she is laying out her experience growing up in mayberry uh, as the only black, as only black child, <laughs> black child. And, you know, as you're talking to, I'm thinking again, the privilege of not having to think about any of this, right? Not having to think about any of this is, it, it is ignorance is bliss in that bubble. Again, I'm not giving anyone a free pass. I'm just saying, I understand that if I never have to do something, why would I think me bringing you into my home is a problem for you? When I'm only going, I'm going to feed you, I'm going to close you, I'm rescuing you, I'm doing all of these wonderful things. And now you get to have the opportunities that you would never have. And I'm not thinking that those opportunities are an affront, that they are somehow problematic for you. I'm thinking I'm giving you an opportunity. Have you, did you have, did you have an opportunity to talk with your parents, your adoptive parents? Cause you're very clear about that language. Um, do they, oh. did they ever get it? Did they ever get it? Did the no. light bulb ever go off? So <laughs> when I told you that I lined up a therapist for after, and this is, you know, I, I, I'm not a young gal, you know, I'm 52 years old. I waited my ass off, right, to, to write this book. Um, I'm grown. Uh, and so, um, and I have the emotional fortitude and the intellectual freedom to tell my story. I have been extremely close with my parents. I have been very, very close with them growing up. Um, they have two biological children who still live in the town where I grew up. Um, and, you know, we shared things like love of art and love of music. Although as I started to really find my people, you know, then they sort of started to not understand how to deal with that, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that when as a white adoptive parents, right? If you are adopting black or brown or children of color and you say that race doesn't matter, it's gonna be a problem when it matters to that child and that person, right? And particularly when I have my son. And, you know, when he was little, of course, he was this little, you know, racially ambiguous brown skinned cutie pie, right? And, and so, it, there was no problem. But as he started to come into his blackness, as he started to, his hair changed and his, and you know, and his tone and his swagger and the way that he wanted to be, that changed. They were like, I don't know what to do with this because they didn't take into account 
that race matters, that mm. blackness matters, black lives matters. And I'm talking like, you know, 40 years ago, black lives have always mattered. Not and they especially right. matter, right? When you are raising one. So, but Rebecca, you, you married a white man though. I did. Okay. So, <laughs> Why uh, no, I'm just, I'm, you know, it, it, uh, and, and again, love, love is love. You love who you love. I'm not mad at that, but how much of being raised in under that white gaze influenced your choice of mate, you know, like, listen, it, listen, I have to tell you a couple of things. One is that on our first date, I had already decided, I mean, this is in the book, right? Because I had, after 9-11, I had this, this moment, this, you know, really painful, but clear epiphany that I was going to have a baby on my own. And I had up until this point been absolutely resolute that I was going to be with a black man and that the father of my child would be a black man. It was just no question. It was absolutely no question. And so one afternoon, you know, this white guy on the subway platform comes up to me, says something pithy, right? We're on the train. He tells me he's on his way to a conference on race and social policy. I'm like, you said what now? First of all, I couldn't believe that there was a white, that a white person existed, <laughs> such a white person who would go to a conference on race and social policy and not make a big deal about it not wait for the cookies. That was the first thing. That was why I agreed to go out on a date. On our first date, and I am not exaggerating, Karen, before we ordered drinks, I said, I am having a baby within two years. By the time I'm 36 years old, I was 34 at the time. What do you want? And he said, let's have dinner first. That's how that, and then, you know, and then I fell in love with him. I ain't mad at you. All right, Rebecca Carroll, we're going to talk more. Um, there's a new movie out, and I invited you on because we've been, you know, commenting on social media about this passing. And I wanted to, and I had already, I had April scheduled to be on the show. I didn't know you this did. passing. Oh, yeah. Great. yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this was, you know, this is Kismet. So I was like, let's, let's, let's talk because I, I, I want us to understand race through the lens of, of people who actually live it or have lived it in a way that's unique because I grew up in a black home in an all black neighborhood with black family, black, 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 everything was black till I went to high school. And I was like, Oh, what is happening here? Um, oh, but even then I felt, I felt a sense of, of, of pride in myself enough and in, in accomplishment that I, you know, I'm supposed to dominate. Like I came out of that household. Well, that's the thing, right? That's precisely the thing. And that is the thing that black adoptees don't, have and don't feel and aren't lifted up in, gathered up in. And what I, I mean, what I've realized is that, you know, the sort of pain and sort of, um, you know, confusion was so much about the sense of, of feeling bereft, right? Of, of something is missing. And it's, it's what's missing is the ancestral embrace, the physical ancestral embrace. Um, and that took a long time to really, to really resonate, but it, but it, but it resonated in time to give it to my child. 
Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.